neuroplasticity and neuroplasticity is one of like humanity's greatest gifts. The idea that our brains retain plasticity as we age and can learn new information, new skills, new languages. Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for curious people about the latest in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions that benefit your health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you. We hope you enjoy the show. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by our guest, Dr. Amy Cruz. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for uh, having me on today, and thanks for bringing neuroscience into your podcast today. Excellent. We're super excited to uh, to learn about what you're up to and what you've seen. Um, but real briefly, let me introduce Amy, who's a friend. She's a neuroscientist and a biologist who works across neuroscience, human augmentation, synthetic biology, longevity, regeneration, and agriculture. She is a general partner of Prime Movers Lab, where she leads their life sciences investments. And prior to that, she co-developed the DARPA program in neuroscience. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with with DARPA, they are the U.S. military research arm that aims to help soldiers to optimize their capabilities on and off the battlefield. We're joined by my co-host, uh, naturopathic doctor, Dr. Natalie Walsh from our Silicon Valley office, and Dr. Hadi Halazun, uh, double board certified in cardiology and internal medicine from our New York office. So let's get started. And maybe maybe a good place to start would be to talk about sleep, something that we do for a third of our lives, and we don't really remember much about it. So in all the work that, that you've done and all the things that you've seen, Amy, how important is sleep and, and, and how do you organize your life around it? So, so a couple things. One is obviously, uh, you know, sleep, we know sleep is important, um, but the question is, why is it important, right? And, and it really does have very particular impacts on the brain that I think most people might be kind of aware of, but might not be familiar with, right? So there's really two functions of sleep. And there's probably more that we haven't discovered yet because there's there's a lot to discover about sleep. But but one function is really to to help our brains sort of clean themselves out, right? So a lot of, you know, proteins and gunk and all kinds of, you know, sort of uh, detritus from the from from our daily lives uh, accumulate in our brains. And it's part of sleep to actually uh, help cleanse the brain uh, and, and get those, uh, you know, sort of things that don't need to be there anymore out. Um, so that's often thought to be uh, what happens during slow wave sleep, which is sort of that deep restorative sleep that that, that people enter typically uh, at, into the evening. Um, the other thing is that uh, REM sleep, which is the sleep that's associated with uh, dreaming and, you know, sort of that, uh, you know, sort of looks like your brain is awake, but you're actually not moving. Uh, that is actually associated with memory formation and consolidation. And so uh, whenever I talk about sleep, I always tell people, you know, it, it really has a couple of different roles in our lives. And it's one reason why, uh, you know, healthy sleep, uh, long enough sleep times uh, are important because our brains need to cycle through those stages. And if you don't sleep enough or if you have really disturbed sleep, your your brain isn't actually able to go into those stages. Um, so now let me talk about my sleep. One of the most important things for me has been sleep hygiene. You know, you hear, you hear people talk about that. What does that mean? It means 
you know, setting regular uh, bedtimes, setting regular wake times, uh, make sure that you're reducing lights and screens and other things, you know, in the hour or more before bed, not eating too close to bedtime uh, to give your body time to digest those things. So I've really become um, quite vigilant about my own sleep hygiene. And uh, I think that has really borne fruit, certainly in terms of the sleep tracking that I've done and the information that I've gathered, you know, a good seven to eight hours a night is really, uh, really something that's quite optimal and impacts so much of our health. Can, can you actually dive into that a little bit? How has that helped you? You say you have seven, eight hours, but can, is there a palpable, noticeable way that you are different as a result? Yeah. So uh, a couple different things. One is I realized that I uh, sort of had a natural wake up time. Um, and so, or, or at least my body tended to wake up at the same time every morning. And so that if I wanted to get more sleep, I actually had to go to bed earlier, <laughs> not sort of sleep in, like sleep in longer. That has actually given me more energy in the morning to then exercise and, you know, kind of get started and kind of get rolling um, I, I am one of the people, like I worked on sleep deprivation <laughs> when I was at DARPA, right? So I, I know the impact of sleep deprivation on our brains. Um, I am someone who, when sleep deprived, deprived is particularly susceptible to short-term memory issues. Like I can literally tell if I'm sleep deprived, I like, I can't remember like a phone number, you know? <laughs> and so, um, I, I notice, you know, sort of those effects, energy throughout the day, um, yeah, just just overall, I think um, has, it's really been around that wake time for me and the consistency there. Definitely. I talk to patients a lot about sleep hygiene. I talk about how it moves those short-term memories into long-term storage um, when you get enough sleep. Um, but how does sleep specifically benefit the aging brain? I know sleep changes as we get older. Sleep changes as women go through menopause, for example. What do we know about that aging process and how it affects sleep? Our sleep bouts typically become shorter as we age. Uh, and we also spend, it appears that we spend uh, less time in slow wave sleep. So unfortunately, uh, as we age, we get shorted on uh, some of that most restorative uh, you know, sort of elements of sleep. And so it's actually one of the reasons that I think it's so important as we age to, uh, you know, just double down on uh, what, what we know affects and impacts our, uh, our sleep, right? Nutrition, uh, hydration, uh, you know, all of, all of those things, caffeine, you know, really try to minimize, like I've, I've almost entirely cut caffeine out of my, out of my day. I have a little bit in the morning still, um, but that's about it. And so just really vigilant about that because as we age, you know, it naturally declines. And I think there are many things that we can do to try and, you know, kind of add that back, including, you know, not having, you know, trying to have continuous and non-disrupted uh, sleep sleep bouts, you know, as we would call them. Exercise, hydration, nutrition, all of those things can help push us back into slow wave sleep bouts and, and the more restorative form of sleep. So we really have to, as we age, engineer our sleep a little bit better. It's funny, uh, Amy, I was reading a, uh, something that like 75% of Americans are dehydrated and they don't know it. And I, I wonder what is the, what is the neuroscience mechanism of dehydration and, and like 
the brain and sleep? And like, how does that all come together? Or do we know? You know, I, I don't know the, the precise linkage. I do know that there are folks right now who are working on what they call, it's called the glymphatic system in the brain. So, so there are folks who, who hypothesize right now that the slow wave sleep in our brain is actually like squeezing our brain like a sponge and actually getting out, you know, sort of, sort of that material, the, you know, cerebral spinal fluid, right. That our brain is bathed in, uh, is essentially like sponging our brain and, and sort of cleaning that, that out. I mean, obviously if you're, if you're dehydrated, if you're, uh, really have a bad fluid balance, you know, have a bad, uh, electrolyte balance, like that, that will be impacted. And so I've heard numerous times that people who, uh, increase their hydration actually improve their sleep. And are, are you seeing a lot of stuff in the kind of in the venture capital space on sleep? There's mattresses, there's, there's the aura ring. What's, what's interesting to you out there and what, what do you think is promising? It's really, it's an exciting space. It's a growing space. I have made the hypothesis or the, the, the statement that I think uh, sleep will be the first real neurotechnology you know, implementation of, you know, to, to sort of to the masses. I know there's a lot of neurotech out there, but I really think sleep will be, you know, the first thing where we see a, an intervention, uh, not just a wearable or a recording device. Yeah, we're seeing some really interesting stuff, um, even, you know, work inspired by the work that DARPA had done and other places. Uh, people are using uh, headbands to measure the stages of sleep. It's actually quite easy to measure the stages of sleep with just one or two electrodes on your head uh, as you're sleeping. And there are headbands out there that are that are doing that now. Um, and then closing the loop, meaning measuring what stage of sleep that you're in and either uh, delivering electrical stimulation to the brain during slow wave sleep, sound stimulation during sleep, again, to drive uh, certain uh, frequencies and 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 depth of frequencies uh, during the during the sleep bout. So um, that's been you know some of the some of the things that we've been seeing that are a little bit more on the consumer side. On the clinical side, uh, people are starting to look at using low intensity ultrasound to modulate the brain uh, in cases of insomnia and other shift work uh, disorders. So I I think we're in the you know we're going to be in the golden age of sleep uh, soon in terms of the the tools and techniques that are going to be available. I was going to ask you, Amy, you know, are all hours of sleep created equal? Meaning that if you take an Ambien and, and get eight or 10 hours, is that any different from getting eight, and eight or 10 hours without Ambien? Uh, well, first of all, the mechanism of action of Ambien is not particularly well known in the brain. It is, it is known that it does degrade um, the sleep structure that we talked about. So it's not something that you would want to uh, use all the time because you would be impacting your, your sleep structure. So I think there's some challenges there. There are other, um, there are other sleep aids that are, that are on the market that are based on the orexin, uh, you know, sort of network in the brain, which is uh, the orexin is a peptide that, that controls sleep and wake that I think is a little bit perhaps closer to the more natural uh, sleep-wake controls in the brain uh, versus Ambien, which I think is more like a big knob, you know, like a big gain knob to just turn up and turn up and down the volumes. I'm obviously a little bit more excited about the neurotechnology elements because anytime you can avoid uh, taking, you know, sort of a prescription or, or something like that, if you don't have to, um, you know, is, is I think advantageous.
so on the other side of sleep, there's awake. You know, caffeine is one way to stimulate the brain. And, you know, I think that's the most widely uh, 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 traded substance in the world. But but then there's stuff like ProVigil, which I know the military used uh, to keep people awake. Can you talk a little bit about those substances, like the ProVigils and how they work? And maybe like we do get occasionally asked for for that, you know, uh, as doctors. And I, I kind of like like I think that's for pilots, not for like something something that's not recreational in any way, shape or form. The problem with any type of stimulant, whether it's caffeine, provigil, modafinil, you know, all the all the all the names, is that whenever you drive a system with a stimulant, uh, typically you overdrive it, right? And so, what happens is then people feel the need to like come down, right? And so you you can get yourself in this vicious cycle of overstimulating the system and then trying to use you know, for lack of a better term, a downer, whether that's alcohol or some other type of substance to, you know, pull you back off that, you know, again, air quotes high, right? So my my worry is that in any case, like like whether it's the ambient or whether it's the provigil, infrequent use is probably okay if it's for, for something in particular. However, uh, sustained use drives the nervous system in a way that you just don't want to go there. <laughs> Right. So, um, yeah, so that's what I'd say about, you know, about stimulants as well as 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 sort of the sleep element. And what about cognitive aging? You know, are there tools, memory games, apps? Do do things work? I mean, obviously, good exercise, nutrition. We talked about these like fundamental building blocks, but are there ways to get an edge on it? I'm actually seeing a, a few things and and definitely want to, I mean, I love the thread from from sleep to cognitive aging, right? Because you talked about the, the things that we can do to maintain healthy brains as we age, sleep, hydration, nutrition, exercise, 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 exercise for your brain. Um, and then in terms of the cognitive stimulation, um, have definitely seen some things out there that that have impact. There are uh, two, I would call them two sort of categories, and, and it's going to be a really interesting, you know, sort of thing. Uh, we often hear like how bad, like, you know, video games are bad for your brain. You know, it's like, it's actually like, well, not they're not all bad for your brain. They're actually good for visual spatial processing. So if you <laughs> if that's something you're trying to improve, there's, you know, nothing wrong with uh, with doing that. As a matter of fact, there was uh, data showing that surgeons who play video games are actually more effective, uh, more uh, skilled surgeons than, than than those who don't. So, um, but yeah, in terms of uh, cognitive aging, um, I've I've personally, so I, I know the data behind this, so I can I can personally speak about it. There's a company called Posit Science that has a software called Brain HQ um, that has been uh, clinically validated uh, and is particularly uh, been validated in aging populations. Um, it is, you know, kind of a web-based, you know, really uh, very simple game. It's not a, you know, you know, it's not Call of Duty <laughs> or anything. It's uh, it's definitely sharpening the the skills around uh, executive function, attention, working memory, all of the stuff that you know you kind of need to uh, need to sharpen uh, as we as we age. Um, and then you know there are other other things that I've seen uh, in the uh, often used by uh, athletes and sports. Uh, you know, folks who are, who are working to get good at their sport. There's uh, other software like called NeuroTracker. Uh, it's a 3D, you put on some 3D goggles and allows you to track objects in three dimensions, um, which helps with the sort of wiring and timing in your brain. Again, a, a lot for visual spatial 
uh, you know, sort of activities. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's some, there's some good stuff out there. There's some, you know, there's some crap, uh, you know, I, I like to, to see the clinical evidence and the studies that the, um, folks show that I think are really, um, you know, the gold standard for how we think about cognitive, uh, cognitive performance, whether that's amelioration of cognitive decline or, or cognitive enhancement. I was wondering how long it takes people to get benefit from these kinds of things. Like, do you need to brain train for a year, a month, a day? <laughs> Some people do it just one time. <laughs> Forget about it. Yeah. If so American, right? Like, is there, can we just do this once and then it works? Like, you know, so uh, it's about a month, I would say, you know, typically the, the differences that we saw, we actually did a, a study in my previous job um, with, a uh, executive group at a um, uh, Silicon Valley tech uh, company, um, and the folks engaged uh, with us. They were they were mostly almost all of them were forty five and older. Uh, some were were even uh, more aged than that, and uh, saw cognitive benefits both in terms of what their brains looked like. We measured EEG and looked at their brain activity, uh, and then their cognitive performance improved after about a month of using the software which is rather encouraging. And of course, as people start to feel benefits, uh, people want to engage more with the software. So I think it's always one of those virtuous cycle types of things. And if you can get uh, enough practice in that, actually uh, you start to feel some benefits, that's typically when you know people develop a habit, right? So, Is that any different from doing the crossword every day and, and doing these? I have two and a half year old at home and I'm thinking it seems like his toys would be a great, great way to just stay cognitively uh, functioning as I age. Honestly, the notion of like doing a crossword puzzle or, or those types of things, I don't, I mean, those have not really shown to be the types of things that, you know, that cause long-term, I would say, you know, sort of benefits in the, in the brain from cognitive aging perspective. I do think, um, you know, I always remind people that our, our brains are, are sort of these integrated sensory motor systems right? And so things that engage our sensory motor systems, meaning vision, audition, you know, the things that you're doing with your hand, the more um, engaging those can be and the more systems that you can hit, I think um, that's definitely something uh, something of interest. That's not to say that maybe your memory, long-term memory for particular words wouldn't get good, uh, you know, you know, sort of doing a crossword. But if you're looking for like overall um, protection against cognitive aging, I think engaging our our full sensory motor systems is really key. And do we still think novelty is important? Like if you are always a musician, then maybe just, you know, continuing to practice your guitar isn't going to slow your aging, but it'd be better for you to take up painting or do something totally new. Um, are we still thinking that that's helpful for aging? I think plasticity and neuroplasticity is one of like humanity's greatest gifts right? The idea to, um, that our brains uh, retain plasticity as we age um, and can learn new information, new skills, new languages. Um, I always think that engaging, um, you know, sort of the neuroplasticity of the brain is a way to um, not only, uh, you know, not only bolster against cognitive aging, but also develop resilience in 
the brain and nervous system that I think is is really critical, especially right now. I mean, you think about where we are right now with stress and, you know, all, all of the things that are happening, mental health challenges. Um, so, you know, maintaining that plasticity in our in our brains and, and engaging with it as much as possible, I think, is is one of the keys to resilience. So so on the subject of neuroplasticity, because I know, Amy, you and I have talked about this, there's a there's a non-trivial uh, emergent um, secular trend of what people call psychedelics. And um, and that can be that can be, uh, you know, people can go back to Timothy Leary and LSD. They, now there's ketamine clinics popping up. And, you know, I, I don't like the word psychedelics. I call it neuroplastic therapeutics. So plasticity plasticity comes in a lot of flavors. It's not just one. But maybe you could start as a jumping off point. So what are you seeing in the in the realm of neuroplastics? So thinking about, you know, thinking about these plastogens as we, you know, have been have been talking about, I think I think in the topic of 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 these medicines, uh, you know, that, that we've been discussing, the really exciting thing for me is that when you know, when the when the great chemists came up with uh, SSRIs, right, and you know Prozac and everything else, it it really was that synaptic molecular kind of view of the brain. Like, oh, if we just fix the synapses, you know, and fix the neurotransmitters, everything will be fine, you know. And I think what we're seeing and and what you're seeing with the work that you know this renaissance in 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 these medicines, psychedelic medicines, is causing is now we have a much more functional understanding of the networks in the brain, right? We have a sense of, you know, the frontal lobe and the default mode network and what the various, you know, areas and how they're interacting with one another. And what we are seeing is that these experiences, if they are, you know, sort of these transformative uh, type of experiences that people are describing in, uh, you know, psilocybin and, and other medicines is what it's doing is actually shifting the networks in the brain, right? So you're having this reset experience that allows you to sort of like, um, I'm going to use a, a, a euphemistic term of like, get out of your own head, right? If you've read Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, sort of the discussion around, um, you know, uh, like sort of ego death or, you know, quieting from the neuroscience perspective, quieting down the default network default mode network, which, which I call the thinking about thinking about yourself network. Uh, and, and really quiets that down and allows the brain to sort of, you know, get a, a fresh perspective on some of those things, then people, uh, I think, and, and this is one of the spaces where we're seeing new uh, medicines and new novel chemical entities being developed, it, maintaining some of that plasticity, as you're having you know, whether it's therapy sessions, you know, uh, counseling, et cetera, cognitive behavioral therapy allows you to then kind of cement those new changes, right, in a way that that kind of, uh, I think, transforms the networks in the brain in a very, I think, a very natural and, and holistic way, meaning from a functional network perspective, not just getting in there and sort of like futzing around, right, with the... Uh, you know, with the synapses. It just seems to me that, you know, the, 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 the drugs that are on the market are basically a little bit of a Band-Aid, where, whereas the, the, the neuroplastic therapeutics seem to, you know, look under the hood a little bit and then dig deep at the core of the problem 
and sort of change those things so that you know you do end up with a better life and a better mood and a better everything. Well, and, and one one thing I will I will add there, and and one thing that sort of equally excites me um, as much as our neuroplastogens uh, uh, ha- do um, is actually is actually neurostimulation, right? So so using non-invasive techniques to stimulate the brain, whether that's electricity, magnets, you know, low intensity ultrasound to try and target some of these same areas and networks um, from from outside the brain, right? So what I think is really excited about what's, exciting about what's happening right now is that we have kind of this renaissance in in these sort of old medicines and and how we you know can potentially change those and build off of them. And we have this whole emerging space of, you know, brain stimulation, peripheral nerve stimulation, vagal nerve stimulation, um, that also is a is a is a node, a, a network into the brain for long-term changes. And you're starting to see, you know, vagal nerve stimulation used for stroke recovery, for PTSD, you know, just I mean, some really exciting. Uh, you know, sort of application spaces. So I'm, I'm sort of like equally excited about both, and I'm, you know, they're racing down the down the track to see, you know, which ones I, I hope will. I mean, I mean, I think I, I personally, I think we're developing a toolkit here. I don't think there's going to be like a, oh, it's this for that always. You know, I think all of a sudden we're opening up our neuroscience intervention toolkit, right? That will um, give us access to both um, drug therapeutics as well as you know, neurostimulation therapeutics. And if I can ask, so you talked about like stimulating the brain from the outside. And I know we're, uh, we're kind of getting short on time. So, but what about like meditation? Is that stimulating the brain from the inside? Is that like the opposite of what you just talked about or the inverse of it? Meditation does change the brain. As a matter of fact, I got interested in the psychedelic medicine renaissance by First, looking at the neuroscience of the brain changes that were associated with meditation and long-term meditators, because the same type of brain changes that you see, the, you know, the decrease in the default mode network, the attention networks coming online, the reduction in, you know, sort of anxiety and on all and some of these symptoms you see uh, in long-term meditators, and and oftentimes. You know, if you've ever seen the work of John Kabat-Zinn, you know, mindfulness, mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, is a very structured way of trying to attack, you know, cravings or uh, obsessive compulsive disorder or some other things. And so that's, I'm really excited because that is something that's free. <laughs> so real quick, let's get to the uh, rapid fire questions at the end. Natalie, you want to, you want to run through the rapid fire questions? All right. So first rapid fire, um, what is the integration of cognitive neuroscience into primary care? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, th- I think, again, I think understanding the brain in, as networks and, and thinking about it at, the, at that sort of global level and understanding, you know, kind of the states that are associated with maybe particular, you know, challenges and, and thinking about the toolkits that we have uh, in front of us, I think, I think we're oh, we're moving so rapidly away from the sort of one size fits all, uh, you know, one pill fits everything. You know, as a primary care physician, understanding some of those networks and understanding where the research is will give you that toolkit, access to that toolkit. Okay. What are some misconceptions in your field? Oh, that we can read people's minds. 
you know, do you think we'd be in the hot mess we're in right now if we could read people's minds? No, no, we can't. We can't read people's minds. What is one innovative new product that's for for consumers that you can share about? Yeah, I I would say all the work that's going on with, with sleep tracking right now. There's so many, I, I, you know, I've talked about the Aura Ring already. I've, I've seen that, you know, really proliferating. It's really changed my, you know, sort of life. But I think the, you know, the sleep headbands, the ability to track your own sleep and then, you know, understand, you know, sleep staging and modify that, I think is really, really exciting. Uh, what's been the biggest revelation in your field in the last five years? In the last five years? Um, I, I would say that it is the impact of the neuroplastic therapeutics on, on mental health. And last question, what is the biggest thing coming? I believe that eventually using all of these tools and techniques that we've talked about, we will be able to dial in the particular states, the mental states, cognitive states that we want to be in on our own, of our own doing. So I need to be focused right now. I'm going to dial in focus. I want to go to sleep right now. I'm going to dial in good sleep. Well, thank you so much. I know we're at the end of our time with you, but it was so wonderful to, to meet you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I, I feel like there's a lot more to discuss. So if you want to dive into other aspects of the brain, you can call me anytime. All right. Well, thank you, Amy. And um, have a wonderful day. And uh, we'll see you again. All right. See you soon. Sleep well. Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine, a private medical production. We hope to have inspired you to think a bit differently about your health and the healthcare system. Until next time.